fall into the theology bit. Welcome to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh. I'm your host, Samson Kovach, and they say when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here we're going to keep you well hydrated. Um, as your host on this journey, I want to uh, have a little back and forth with you every now and again. So if you'd like to leave me a message on Facebook, you can just Google search. Well, I guess search in the Facebook um, search tab there for uh, The Theology Pit. You can email me, samson at samsonstick.com, or you can go to one of these, um, I guess, uh, podcasts, blog forums, whatever it is on my website there, and uh, you have 10 days after each one of these is uh, posted, <clears throat> excuse me, after it comes out to um, say what you like or what you didn't like uh, about the show. Um, this is episode 13 of the understanding of the application of the atonement. The last two weeks, the last two episodes, we spent a lot of time in history um, understanding things. And we're going to do that a little bit more today, but we're going to start transitioning into um, the next understanding of the application of the atonement, which is the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. Now, just to recap very quickly, we looked at the recapitulation view of the atonement, which was that Christ had to come and redo everything Adam was supposed to have done. Uh, By recapitulating that, by redoing that, he then stood in our place and he did it all for us. And he represented us through every um, aspect of life uh, from birth to death. Also around this time, this is, you know, beginning of the, of the church. So, you know, 33 AD and, and on, mostly 2nd, 3rd, 4th uh, century, you're, you're having these ideas. Um, the, uh, oh, what is it? Ransom the Satan. That's the next one. The Ransom the Satan view of the atonement uh, was the one where uh, a penalty had to be paid, and that penalty was to Satan. And we saw that, and we discussed that. And then we discussed the, um, very quickly, the moral view that Christ's death just, you know, it meant something for us to look to, to see how to be obedient. And then we talked about the satisfaction view of the atonement or the uh, sacramental view. And now we're going to be heading up to the vicarious view. left off, we were in the Middle Ages, as they were called, and when you have things going on in the Middle Ages, one of the things I didn't talk about was the veneration of the saints, and these would be um, prayers that would be made to the saints. Now, a lot of times people caricature Catholics as worshiping saints or worshiping Mary. And that's, that's really not fair. It's not true. Now, some Catholics may do that. I'm not going to say that all don't. I'm going to say that all shouldn't. And I'm not saying that from a Protestant perspective. I'm saying that from uh, <clears throat> the perspective of somebody 
who has studied Roman Catholicism, has listened to what uh, Roman Catholic apologists have said, and the warnings that they've given. Um, Dr. Scott Hahn, in his uh, lecture series, Answering, Answering Common Objections to the Catholic Faith, in his discussion of the veneration of the saints, he says that, he gives one example for a, a woman that he knew who had a statue of Mary in her yard. And every day she would get up and she would dress this statue and then at night undress this statue. Now he said that she never went to mass. She never partook of the sacraments. She didn't have really a spiritual life. And he said that if this is all you have, then your, your faith is warped. He also said in that lecture series that if you are going to the saints as a means to God instead of going through Christ, you need to stop it because you don't understand what the veneration of the saints is. In the Latin terms of the veneration of the saints, you have what's called uh, dulia, and that's the veneration. Think of it as a, a giving honor, a, a remembrance in a way. If you see iconography or statues or anything like that in, in people's houses, it's, they're, they're more reminders of the person's life, the faithfulness that they had, the life that they led. And as an encouragement, it, it's seen much like how we would have pictures of family members, maybe even family members that have passed hanging you know, in our houses. We don't worship them, but we're reminded of them. We're reminded of their, uh, their life. We're reminded of what they've accomplished. And we can look on that in a, in a loving way. And we can honor them by putting them in that position in our homes. That is dulia. Hyperdulia is generally what is given to Mary, the mother of God, uh, the ever virgin. Um, she, and I know some people were like, what do you say? An ever virgin? She had other kids. Okay. That's another pit, another discussion, but, um, she's given a greater honor because she was the one who brought forth. She was, um, Theotokos. She was the God bearer. And so greater honor is given to her. Uh, some have called her a co-redemptrix or co-redemptress. I believe the proper way of saying it is. Um, some elevate her to a position that others may find as, as blasphemy, as her getting the glory of God. And some people do worship her. But according to the Roman Catholic faith, this is wrong because worship, the word is latria and latria is reserved only for God. And if you can't tell the difference between dulia, hyperdulia and latria, then you should not be venerating the saints because you don't know what you're doing. Now, those aren't my words as a Protestant. That is roughly paraphrased from Dr. Scott Hahn. And whenever I look at other faiths that I, I disagree with, I try my best 
to look at their heart and look at what they have in store, what they're trying to say, what their motives are. And when I do that, rarely the motive are, are the motives malicious. I don't see anybody of any faith, of any theological doctrine, theological background that did something just to be malicious. They do something because they think it's right, because they think it's honorable, because they think it's pleasing to God. And I think in that sense, that's how you should take it and that's how you should understand it. And you should give them that credit, give them that benefit of the doubt, give them that grace. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you can't be critical of what they're saying. I think that we should be. I think we should be critical of what we think ourselves. And we should look at what we believe and why we believe it. And is it logical? Does it stand up? Is it, is it reasonable for us to hold to that? Sorry, slurp a little coffee there. And when I think about this, and I think about the time period that we're talking about, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, and people are meriting God's favor through the veneration of the saints. They're asking the saints to talk to God on their behalf, to pray for protection in certain situations. And by asking them to do that, they are saying that the saints are not dead, but the saints are alive, and they're more alive than we are because they are with Christ. And if they hear our prayers, then they can give constant prayer and constant asking uh, of, of God on our behalf. And with Mary, um, they would look back at, you know, certain stories in the Old Testament of um, uh, Solomon, his, his mother, coming to him because somebody went to her on their behalf and said, if the mother of the king asks for something, he will listen, he will grant it. It's not unreasonable for people to think this way. It may sound unreasonable to a Protestant today because we have the benefit of standing on this side of the understanding of the application of the atonement, of the vicarious substitutionary view. But if you don't have that understanding, this isn't unreasonable. St. Anne was seen as a patron saint and was looked on very favorably. The reason being is because, and I'm just, I'm going to speculate on, on, on a lot of this stuff, but I'm kind of putting this together in my head on, on St. Anne. Jesus was without sin. In order for him to be born without sin, it was theorized that Mary 
was also immaculately conceived. Not in the same way, not a virgin birth, but supernaturally protected from sin. For her to be supernaturally protected from sin, people have argued, theorized that perhaps her mother had to have this also. Some would say if you're going to make that claim, then necessarily, because all you're doing is pushing it back one generation in order for there to be a pure vessel for the Lord to come through. But regardless, Mary's mother had to have been something special or seen as some someone special in order for her to conceive of Mary and have this supernatural thing taking place in her womb. This is who St. Anne is, the grandmother of Jesus. St. Anne was also known as the patron saint of, or I guess the patroness, patroness? Maybe that's how you spell it. The female patron, the patroness of uh, women in labor to prayers to be made for her if a woman's going into labor, if a baby's going to be born. That's who you would venerate. That's who you would make your request to. But she's also the patroness of minors. That's M-I-N-E-R-S, not M-I-N-O-R-S miners, people work who work in the mines, because um, Christ being compared to gold and Mary being compared to silver, precious things, things that miners bring up. She got to be that, that patron saint. In Germany, there was mining Outfits there, mining businesses, people own mines. Martin Luther's father was a miner. He had a mining business. So, of course, St. Anne was going to have a very big uh, influence, a presence, let's just say presence, in, in that family, in that life. Martin Luther went to school, was studying to be a lawyer. His father was sending him there. He went most generally for, um, you know, the liberal arts, the, the bare requirements of, of general learning before turning and focusing on law. And he was studying to be a lawyer when at some point he was caught in a rainstorm out in the field and Lightning was flashing all around him, and he was afraid to die. And lightning struck very close to him, and it scared him, and he called out on St. Anne to protect him. Which is interesting, because St. Anne is, I mean, he, he wasn't in labor, and he wasn't a minor. But he called out to her, and he said, if... You will help me if I will be spared. I promise you that I will serve God for the rest of my life. 
and he lived through that ordeal. And much to the, the dismay of his father, and presumably his mother, his family, uh, he stopped being a lawyer and studied to be a go into the ministry, um, to be a monk. Now, when you move into the ministry of this of this time period, speaking in a career type of format, you have a lot of different options of what you could do. Somebody who's trained as a lawyer could easily get into a doctoral program of canon law, could become a cardinal, could become a, a doctor of uh, theology. But instead of going that direction, he went in a different direction because his sensitivity to his sins and what makes one right with God. How is one to be saved? He decides to join the order of the Augustinians. Now, the Augustinian order, of all the orders, I don't even know if I've, I mentioned them in the previous... I think I mentioned the Franciscans and the Dominicans and just in passing, not even what they what they were, what their, their jobs were. The Augustinians were, if you could relate these orders to our military and in how the average person, the civilian, views the military, the Augustinians were like the Marines, okay? Or like the Navy SEALs. Or, I mean, you're talking about one of the toughest most disciplined orders that you could join, the most rigorous. What they were noted for in their rules, in, in, in what they did, the way that they were characterized, I guess you could say, and, and still are to this day, um, is first and foremost uh, the poverty now, it wasn't just poverty of individual poverty that I am going to take a vow of poverty as a, as a priest. This was a corporate pro- poverty. You were going to live in a community that is poor, necessarily, that's in poverty. You are going to live by very strict rules and a very strict regimen in what you were allowed to do. This is actually an, uh, an order that a, a monastic life, a uh, fraternity, I suppose you could say, um, that was started by a pope. Um, that's, that's unusual in that sense. Um, he 
wanted to, when he got into things, take it as uh, to the extreme because if you want to know what something is, don't just do it halfway. You do it the full way, and that's that's what he did. One of the things, some of the things that the Augustinians did is they spent a great deal of time that they devoted to learning. And again, we're in this, this Renaissance movement. We're in this ad fonts period. We're in this time where, uh, you know, people are learning and studying and the, the humanists and the, um, scholastics are very big. And so they're spending a lot of time devoted to learning, to study, to prayer, service to the poor and defending the Pope and the church. That is the mindset that Luther has. So I find it difficult when people say that when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg, he was doing it, uh, to antagonize the Pope or he was doing it. He was writing against the Pope. Which, in some areas, he may have been, let's say, uh, abrasive in the way he was doing things. But he's not writing against the office, and he's not writing against the church. He may be writing against the perceived abuses, and he's writing as though the Pope may not be aware of uh, what's going on. All right, I don't want to jump ahead of myself here. Um, the Augustinian rules uh, were that of uh, common life, prayer, moderation, self-denial, um, safeguarding chastity and uh, fraternal correction, uh, care of common goods, treatment of the sick, um, asking for pardon and forgiving others. Governance and obedience, obedience uh, of, of the rule. Um, Augustinians also use the charism of the gift or you know, gift of the Holy Spirit as a guide to communal life um, through three different ways. Uh, spirituality, searching for God. Um, fraternity community life, um, serving others, helping others, um, trying to be of one heart, of one mind, and ministry service to the church. This is a way where if you are going to be living in a time period where meriting God's favor is how you earn salvation... This is the group to go with, the Augustinians. And remember who St. Augustine was. We talked about him and his writings between him and and Pelagius and and free will, original sin. So you're going to have this, this background, uh, this understanding with the Augustinian order, with, with Martin Luther. He's going to have a certain sensitivity uh, to these things. Now, part of the problem 
that you have when you're living this lifestyle, and especially this time period, is that you're going to be studying, and you're going to be studying scripture. And that's what Luther was doing. He was, he was studying the Bible. And he would come across things that St. Paul would say and, and his life, his behavior. In the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 3, starting at... Now let's go verse verse 4. Um, Paul says, If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, or scubalon, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, in the Augustinian order, remember from St. Augustine's life, what was, what was he trying to do, being a Manichaean? He was trying to live the perfect life through education, through denying himself, through doing everything that he could that the Stoics would Im- imply, that the Gnostics would imply. That by his own will, by his own works, he was going to be righteous. He was going to be good. He was going to be able to do things to please God and to control himself ultimately. And he comes across you know, people who are monks basically living in monasteries who are able to achieve the things that he can't and he considers them idiots because they didn't know. He gives his life to Christ. Upon hearing the preaching of St. Ambrose of, uh, of Milan, he becomes a Christian and he struggles with this. And he says, look, we, we don't have free will because of original sin. He walked away from, away from that. Pelagius then comes up in the same thought tradition not from the same branch, not from the Manichaeans, but from the same thought tradition of we do have free will, we can do things to merit. Remember, he uh, saw grace as the power that God gives you in order to overcome sin rather than uh, grace being defined as a unmerited uh, favor. And 
that's the argument that that takes place between those two. And uh, Augustine eventually wins and the church condemns uh, Pelagius and Pelagian teaching. And so in this order, in this line, is where Luther is. And Luther starts coming to the same realizations that Paul did when he was trying to be a Pharisee. And he's like, it's, it's, it's impossible. I did everything. I was the greatest Pharisee of all the Pharisees. And Augustine is like, I was, well, trying to be the greatest Manichaean. I, I just, I just couldn't be. It's, it's an impossibility. And here's Martin Luther saying, I was the greatest of the Augustinian order. I would do everything. He would be in confession for hours. Um, his, his spiritual father in the order uh, is rumored to have said to him, you confess every day for hours. And I have yet to hear you say anything vaguely interesting. He would throw himself into his work, into his punishment. It was said that, you know, they all had a piece of floor to to scrub. Luther would scrub his so hard that it looked so much cleaner than anybody else's that he put his brothers in a, a predicament. Either they work and scrub and toil as hard as he does, or they scuff up what he has done. When you're trying to truly merit God's forgiveness, merit God's favor in order to forgive you of your sins, Martin Luther was doing it all. He was putting into it. It put him in a very unique position. Reading the letters of Paul, he started to discover that we are justified by faith alone and not by any works, not by merit. And he became focused not on sins, but on sin, singular. The root cause, where it all came from. And this, this was the, 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 thunderclap. This was the lightning bolt. This was the, the, the moment when he realized what Christ had truly done. And because of our total depravity, that we can't do anything for ourselves. It all has to be Christ. He started formulating the doctrine of justification and the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. But this had implications. He would start to bring this, th- these type of things out, saying, look, we can't, we can't trust in the popes because popes have contradicted themselves. There, were, there was a time in his time recently that there were many popes, not at the time he was alive. He was in the time of the politician popes, but prior to them, there were many popes. He's in the, the line of the... Bohemian Reformation of the the Hussites of the uh, the Scholastics, okay, of the Humanists. 
he's gravitating more, you know, towards the scholastics, but you know, in that, in that same vein of, of study. Now, because of his views here, because of these opinions that he's, he's putting forth, some people are taking notice and he's, he's challenged to a debate and in the debate, he's forced into a corner where they're pretty much saying that if then the popes cannot be trusted because of their contradictions, then neither can the councils. Isn't that true, Luther? And he had to admit that it was. And afterwards, he actually thanked his, his, his opponent for helping him realize that, helping him see that, that it's only by scripture alone that we can that we can look to. We can't look to the councils, we can't look to the popes, because they have erred, they have contradicted themselves. And of course this started, you know, getting him into trouble. But he was saying that there's really nothing that we can do. It all has to be God. Even the faith that we have, that we're given, does not merit our salvation. God's grace is not infused in the believer. Where does the action take place? It takes place in the mind of God. God says that you're righteous and therefore you are. And it's not that he says that you're righteous, that that comes in you and that makes you righteous. It's that it's been imputed to you. It's covering you. You are still sinful. You still do sinful things. He said, simile usta epekator. At the same time, I am justified and I am a sinner. Now, the church at the time was not viewing sin this way. It was not seeing justification this way and what we would call sanctification. It was a progressive justification that was happening. And it was through the church. And there had to be some type of semi-Pelagianism going on because without you having the view or the idea that you can aid in your salvation in some way, as we talked about with, with free will and as we talked about with, with election and what Scripture seems to say and, and where the church is standing this time, it's not unreasonable. But they would say, no, 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 we, we do have some type of free will. And one of the greatest humanist theologians of the time, St. Erasmus, didn't agree with Martin Luther. And he wrote a book on the freedom of the will and how it's only logical that we have a type of free will that we can start to merit God's favor. Well, Luther responded to it with his own writing called The Bondage of the Will. And we'll start heading there next. Hey, everyone. 
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. As I said before, Luther can really push the button, so to speak. He writes on the bondage of the will using the almost the exact same title that Erasmus did on the freedom of the will, just changed it to bondage and made the exact opposite argument. But he pushed it so far as to say that Erasmus wasn't even a Christian. Luther has said that the the gospel hinges on the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of justification I can uh, summarize now as looking back you know, through history, and it simply says what God thinks about you or says what God says about you. It tells us what God says about us, that we are just because God has declared us to be just. It's a forensic justification, and he has said that. In the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on justification reads as so, It is also taught among us that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God by our own merits, works, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace for Christ's sake through faith. When we believe that Christ suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us, For God will regard and reckon this faith as righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 3, 21 through 26, and Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Now, if you notice in there, it says that, um, that not by any works that we do, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace for Christ's sake through faith. See, faith is passive. In this, and it's only for Christ's sake because Christ was good enough. Well, Erasmus and the other within the magisterial authority would come back at him and say, "Well, what about good works? Don't aren't we to work out our salvation?" And Luther said, "No, good works does not produce our faith in God. It does not give us His grace." in order for us to be saved. Our good works naturally comes out of us due to the fact that we are made righteous. So the salvation equation, that salvation equals faith plus works, but faith plus works does not equal salvation. It's in the fact that Because of who God has made you to be, that is why you do those good works. Now, Luther may not have understood the full implication of what this means, of justification. A lot of people don't. It takes a lot to think about to really get a hold of this concept, to grasp this idea that if you are in fact justified for Christ's sake, by his faithfulness alone, and it's not anything that you do, but the evidence that you 
have this faith, the evidence that you are justified is because you believe, you confess that Christ is the Son of God, that you confess that he died, was buried, rose again. The gospel message that he was raised for your justification. Because you believe this, that shows evidence that you are saved, have been saved, will be saved, past, present, future. You are justified. Even if you deny this doctrine of justification, it still applies to you. You can deny gravity. It still applies to you. This is the way God does things. That is the doctrine of justification, and that is why it's so hard to get a hold of. With the humanists at the time, and Erasmus studied at the University of Paris. And remember, the University of Paris is the one that was really pushing and championing um, the, uh, the councils being in charge rather than the pope, if you remember that from a couple uh, theology pits ago that we discussed. Out of the Paris universities, this is also where John Calvin came from. And John Calvin, uh, of course, the name uh, Calvinism, this is where the Presbyterian Church comes from and the Westminster Confession. And out of the Westminster Confession, the doctrine of justification, uh, chapter 11 of uh, the doctrine says this. Um, to the, uh, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does not pour righteousness into them, but pardons their sins and looks on them and accepts them as if they were righteous, not because of anything worked in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. He does not consider their faith itself, the act of believing, as their righteousness or any other obedient response to the gospel on their part. Rather, he imputes to them the obedience and judicial satisfaction earned by Christ. For their part, they receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness by faith. And this faith is not their own, but it is itself a gift of God. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the only means of justification. In the person justified, however, it is always accompanied by other saving graces and is not a dead faith, but works by love. Now, that's not a bad summary, and there's more to it in the um, Westminster Confession. It, it goes on to talk about um, election and uh, what have you. But just as Martin Luther did not fully grasp uh, what, what this doctrine meant, because he was condemning people who didn't agree with it, which by doing so, it, that nullifies, it doesn't nullify, it goes against the, the entire concept of justification by faith alone. You cannot say that unless you believe this doctrine, then you are not justified. And that's what some people do. If they say, do you believe that you are justified by faith alone? You say, well, no, I don't believe that. Oh, well, then you're not saved. Well, why not? Well, because you don't believe this doctrine. Oh, so I have to believe in this doctrine in order to be 
justified. I'm not justified just by the faithfulness of Christ alone. I'm justified by actually putting my faith in this doctrine. Now, you might think that perhaps the humanists would have a better grasp on it, the, the scholars, uh, the, the ones in, in the line of, of John Calvin, the, the humanists in that sense, the Presbyterians. And I, I read, you know, what their doctrine of justification is and how it falls in line. And that is, um, yeah, it's Canon 11 or Chapter 11 of um, the Westminster Confession. But then you go to Chapter 24 and on concerning marriage. And the third uh, paragraph says, all people who are mentally, emotionally, and physically capable may legally marry, but it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, which means, this is me speaking here, which means that only Christians should only marry other true Christians. So who are these true Christians? Well, therefore... Those who profess the true reformed religion, they should not marry infidels, Roman Catholics, or other idolaters. The godly should not be unequally yoked in marriage with any who live a notoriously wicked life or who maintain damnable heresies. This shows me that... The Westminster Confession does not understand the doctrine of justification. The guys that wrote, I know there are a lot of people that love the Westminster Confession, I, and I'm a member of a Presbyterian church. I, I understand this. They hold the Westminster Confession up very, very highly. Some have said it's the greatest summary of Scripture that they've ever read, and I completely disagree with that. I, I, I find, and this is a big reason why. You cannot say that you believe that people are justified by the faithfulness of Christ alone and not by any works that they have done. And then turn around and say, just because they believe and think a different way about the way Christ's atonement is applied to us, they are not Christians. That is the antithesis of justification by faith alone. If you say that, as they have done here, you do not understand the doctrine itself. And I've talked to a lot of Presbyterian uh, ministers who hold very tightly to a doctrine of justification by faith alone, and rightly so, and rightly so. But as I've said in, in former podcasts, they give it lip service. The full implication of what Luther had brought out I don't even think that he grasped. I honestly, I don't even think that I fully grasp it. But what I do know is the contradictions between saying that you believe in the doctrine of justification alone and your behavior in the way that you apply that. It's a difference between the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy. Now, because you're in error, of this doctrine, the way that you're living out, the way that you're preaching, the way that you're instructing people, does, is, does that matter to justification? Well, no, it can't. It can't. If you say, like I just illustrated, that if you reject the doctrine of justification, you're not saved, is the same thing as saying if you accept the doctrine of justification, you're not saved. 
which is what the the Catholic Church at this point is becoming the Roman Catholic Church. It's becoming specifically out of Rome. And the big reason is because if grace comes all at once and justifies you, you're putting a lot of people out of work. No longer is a meritous work needed, which is what's driving people to do those good works because they want to merit that grace. They want to merit God's favor. The necessity of living as an Augustinian monk is not needed. You are no more just and holy by being a monk than you are being a janitor or a carpenter or a tax collector or a priest or a peasant or a pope or an emperor. God's grace and his justification is applied to everyone equally. Everyone is in the same equal standing. Therefore, you don't need to confess your sins to a priest and him give you absolution that your sins have been forgiven. You already know that. Your sins have been forgiven. Scripture tells you that. You can read the Bible for yourself. Luther said that people can do it. They, they can read the Bible for themselves. We should put the Bible in everybody's hands. It's why he translated the New Testament. It's why he spent that time uh, doing that after he was kidnapped. And I know I haven't gotten into the life of Luther, and I, I've debated on whether or not I was going to, but it's just, it, it would be way too much history. I want to get into uh, this doctrine, into this uh, vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement and what, and what it means. And I want to spend some time on it so that we fully understand it. While Luther's life is fascinating, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. There's a lot written about him. There's a lot that he brought out. There's a lot that was done. But they said to him, Luther, if you put a Bible in everybody's hands, you're going to get heresy. People are going to interpret it however they want. In the early part of the church, the beginning of the church, because they're studying all the stuff of, of the early Christian church, the church fathers, the centuries, the debates that were going on, the books that were written against heresies. Um, I think Irenaeus wrote that one. Part of the problem was that you had people reading their Bibles unchristianly and you had heresy all over the place and the church had to do something about it. With the limited uh, literary population, you didn't have those problems anymore. You had this implicit faith. That was good enough. And technically, technically, if the doctrine of justification is true, which I believe it is, that is good enough. But God's word was written for us to read, for everybody to read. Luther was not naive. He understood that if Everybody could read the Bible. He said that the Bible's clear enough. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Ironically, that means clarity. But that Scripture's clear enough that a child can read it and find salvation in it. That anybody, a housewife to a, a, a doctor of theology, can read it and find salvation in it, can find rest in Christ. It's worth the risk. Now, the question is, were they right? 
Well, yeah, you look at what's happened today. There's heresy all over the place. Even in Christian churches, and I have a very hard time saying that because I understand the doctrine of justification. I'm doing my best to fully grasp it and comprehend it. But when I hear things on the radio and I see things on TV and I hear people saying it, and I'm not going to name any names because I want to remain charitable, but I hear just the flat-out heresy. And not just heresy because I think it's heresy, but heresy that the church has come together and said, no, that's heretical. You cannot say that. You cannot say that Jesus became the son of God at his baptism or at the virgin birth. He became the son of God. He was not the son of God before that. There was no second person of the Trinity. That's heresy. That God puts on different hats and sometimes he's the father. Sometimes he's the son that sometimes he's the Holy spirit. That's a oneness Pentecostal view. That's heresy. There are mega churches that preach and teach both of those heretical views. Heretical views that you do not find in the Roman Catholic Church. Heretical views that were done away with a long time ago. 17, 1600 years ago. People don't know their church history. They're not being, they're not being taught it. The churches don't teach it. A lot of the churches that we have now is a veneer of faith. It's an implicit faith. It's the ones, if the, if the humanists and scholastics of those times were alive today, they would say, look at what happened. Now, when Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of Wittenberg, he did it in Latin because he wanted to discuss the things that all people have, uh, have discussed at this time period in, in reforming the church. Academic study, reform it from inside, not from outside, inside. Want to have these discussions. Here's 95 things that I want to discuss and talk about, things that I think that are important. Maybe if he was a little gentler with it, uh, the church, there would not have been that, that type of fracturing that we saw. But we'll never know. Um, at the same time, you have a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And he had a different idea than, than Luther did in the way that reform should take place. But the humanists thought that Luther was with them. That, yeah, they're the ones that took the 95 Thesis, as it's, as it's said, and translated into German and published it and made him famous because he looked like he was fighting with them, with their cause. Yes, yes, it is all about the individual. Again, the Paris universities, it is all about the, um, the councils. And, you know, the councils need to be in charge, not the Pope. And then when his debate came out, he said, no, the councils are just as bad. They were like, whoa, let's back up a little bit. And they separated themselves from Luther. Zwingli, um, who was a Swiss reformer, he was of the mindset that, yes, the church and the state should be as one. The state, you know can use the sword in order to further Christianity. He died on the battlefield with a, there, there's a statue of him with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Him and Luther did not agree. Not, not only uh, many different things, but most notably on the nature of communion on the Lord's supper. 
Zwingli said it was just a memorial, nothing more. And during their debates, Luther said, no, it's the body and blood of Christ. It's along with it. Not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation. And during their, their discussion, during their debate that he had, Luther pulled out his knife, stabbed the table, and carved the words into the table, this is my body, and forced Zwingli to look at that the entire time they were having this discussion. Because Christ said that it was, in some way it is. Zwingli ignored that. Calvin didn't take it that far. Calvin said that there is a spiritual feeding that does take place and that Presbyterians hold to today because of it. Anglicans are much more apophatic with it. There's much more mystery that's going on to it. Um, there are some Anglo-Catholics that do push it. Um, the uh, Archbishop uh, Duncan, uh, Bishop Duncan, or he was Bishop Duncan. I think he became Archbishop of Pittsburgh. Um Strong Anglo-Catholic. I think he's going to be retiring soon. I'm I'm making this podcast in uh, January of 2016. And I think he might be retiring soon. But he would do things where, um, you know, when he, at the the times of the, the high services of the church year, Easter or what have you, he would take the consecrated bread out of the church have a procession out. He's bringing Christ to the world. Views it as, you know, in some way, body and blood of Christ. But the Anglican communion as a whole is pretty apophatic with it. They, they leave it up to mystery. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of in that line. I, I believe that it is bread and wine, most definitely. That can't be ignored. The scriptures clearly state that this is bread and wine. The Passover liturgy uses bread and wine. It always has. But at the same time, Christ said it's the body, his body and blood. So I hold to not an either or, but a both and. Jesus Christ is divine and he is human. The Bible is divine and it is human. The Eucharist, the communion, the elements the bread and wine. It's both bread and wine and body and blood of Christ. I don't have a problem with any of those. I tend to lean in that direction of a both and, but even more than that, when you're recognizing the body, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that is written in the context of recognizing the church body. It's a communion. It is a unity celebration. There's an individual aspect to it, but there's also a communal aspect to it. God's working on multiple levels. And I try to keep that all in mind. And I think that it's just as much an error to say that it is just bread and wine as it is to say it is the body and blood of Christ alone. I think that we need to acknowledge and bend our knee to scripture and say, yeah, it's the bread and wine and it's the body and blood. Just like we say that scripture is the word of God and it's the word of man. It's, it's, it's both. It's, it's man's words as led by the Holy spirit as written by the Holy spirit. When we get into bibliology, we'll talk more about that and what it means that uh, the scriptures are, are God breathed, theonoustos, what it means that they're inspired. 
but as Christians taking the Bible as the word of God and understanding that it was written by men, it's, it's, it's both. And we see a lot of that. And, and we could call that tension if you want. I, I leave it up to mystery. But in Martin Luther's translations and in Erasmus's translations and what they're seeing that the word uh, mysterion, meaning mystery, sacramentum, was mistranslated as favor. So the understanding that we're at this point in history of grace is now being re-understood because of ad fonts to the sources, going back and looking at them, that it's not grace, it's favor. We are being given God's favor not his grace, not his grace that is transforming us, that is sanitizing us, but his unmerited favor that's being imputed to us. As it says in Luke's gospel, Hail Mary, highly favored one. It's a better translation than Hail Mary, full of grace. But you have a system that is so tied into this understanding and the way things have always been done. And again, we talked about progressive understanding and progressive revelation. This is a progressive understanding situation here and it's turning everything on its head. It's becoming more about God and less about us. We are being stripped of the inability to be able to help aid in our salvation at any point. That's what's being discovered here. This thread, though, of us having free will and us being able to assist in some way, Martin Luther didn't extinguish that. John Calvin didn't extinguish that. Even within the Presbyterian Church, the... um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church in its um, its statement of, of faith that is uh, the essentials of the faith that's that's given out. It's a uh, I get a prefix I guess of their uh, Westminster Confession that you can get uh, governing documents of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church the EPC in. Chapter 4, it says that being estranged from God and condemned by our sinfulness, our salvation is wholly dependent upon the work of God's free grace. God credits his righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation and thereby justifies them in his sight. Only such as are born of the Holy Spirit and receive Jesus Christ become children of God and heirs of eternal life. Did you catch that? In the same document that says there's nothing that you can do to merit it. Right here, even if this isn't their intention, the sloppiness of this wording implicitly, and in my, I'm not just inferring this, I think explicitly states that God credits his righteousness to those who, and you could put the letter A there or the number one, 
front of this next part, who put their faith in Christ alone, which means if you put your faith in Christ in your works, then this justification is not applied to you. And two, thereby justifies them in his sight. Thereby, when you do this, you merit God's favor and he justifies you. That is the antithesis of the doctrine of justification by faith. When I say that people don't fully grasp this concept, I mean it. And perhaps I don't. Perhaps you're saying I'm wrong. I'm wrong about this. Well, if I am, please show me. Please straighten me out. Please write to me. You know, please, you know, I don't know, make a video on YouTube about how I'm wrong. I don't care. Let me know somehow. Because I've sat down with Presbyterian ministers and I've said, here's what this says. This is what this means. Tell me how I'm wrong. I must be wrong because men a lot smarter than me, people a lot smarter than I am, wrote this. How am I wrong? And the answer that I've got, the best answer that I ever got, was that they know the men and the type of men that wrote this, and this was not what they meant to say. That it can be read the way that I've read it. And that they agree with me, it is sloppy writing. And as far as this goes with the, um, the uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, of which I am a member, I've been encouraged to write an overture to get this changed. And that's something that I have to work towards to get it done. Because if this was not their intention, but this is what they're saying, this is, this is wrong. And in, in my opinion, a let's call it heterodoxical view, another view, another belief. Orthodoxy meaning right belief, hetero meaning other, other belief, different belief. It's a nicer way of saying heresy. But Luther's understanding of what he said and the implications of it have now taken off. But people have said that now we get into a determinalism and we talked about that with when we talked about free will and we talked about fatalism and determinalism and those sort of things people push it in that direction and say so we're we're just robots we have no control over it and the whole thing of pre uh, double predestination and god making people and sending them to hell those those sort of things um and why people have come in and said no, we need something called uh, prevenient grace. And when we get into the, uh, the governmental view of the atonement, that's what we will discuss further. The satisfaction view of the atonement is the belief that the atonement is made on the cross when Christ vicariously takes our place and he bears the exact penalty of his people. And by doing so, he placates the wrath of God and satisfies his righteousness. These, these words should conjure up the understanding of Passover, which I think that it, it, it rightly does and it rightly should. I think that in this atonement, in this understanding of the atonement, you have to take everything that we have learned from the other atonements in the past and then synthesize them in with this, because this is showing how God is taking care of everything and how this has all been done. Now, in the next theology pit, I'm going to go over this 
a little more in, in more detail, step by step, focusing strictly on um, the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement and the analogies and the dilemmas and you know what's going on and and spelling it out and showing in in scripture where all this is coming from, much like I did with the Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments and the uh, infusing of grace through the sacraments and why that seemed necessary in the history of it. And I did take two weeks on that, but hopefully I have us up through history, through our historical understandings and up to the point where we get this picture, we get this understanding of through all of these repetitive generations through Paul, through Augustine and through Luther, all trying to live the perfect life that they thought God prescribed. And it didn't do anything. It was no good. It was of no help. Luther said that he did not find peace until he understood the doctrine of justification. He at some point said that he hated God because God required things that he couldn't do, required living a life that nobody could live. He called it the infectong, I believe is how it was pronounced. It just meant a, a dread, a just, I mean, it can't even be translated into English. The, the, the horribleness that he just felt, that he felt that he was inflicted, cursed by God. Everybody was. They was impossible to be saved that nobody could but hey i hear the music thanks for tuning in to the theology pit again you can find me on facebook at the theology pit or you can email me samson at samsonstick.com make a donation at samsonstick.com and uh next week we are going to get into the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement now it is definitely time to close down the pit